Welcome to Sedaris. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I, uh, I have the privilege this week of sharing with you from the Word. Um, so if you brought your Bible, go ahead and take it out and open up to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We started working through the Gospel of John at the beginning of last year, and we have made it through 14 chapters. All right. That's pretty good. You know, 14 chapters. So... Yeah, uh, we're going to kick off the 15th chapter here today, um, and it's sure to be a good time. Um, I'm so glad uh, that we're here. Uh, You walked in, you saw the prayer room back there. Uh, That prayer room is actually a rotating prayer room, so this week it'll be here. Uh, Next week it'll be at a different church. There's about a dozen churches, maybe maybe more this year, uh, that are going to be kind of involved in this prayer, 40 days of prayer here for the city. And uh, we saw such incredible just unity and camaraderie um, and God show up in some really cool ways last year when we did it for the first time. This year is the next time around. So that's what's going on back there. You can get your coffee and donuts. We moved it into the sanctuary back in that corner today. I will not be offended if you need a refill in the middle of the sermon, okay? So you can get up and walk on back there. Hey, there we go. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, not offended at all. So anyways, that's what's going on here with the layout of things. And so good. Well, as we um, uh, come to this passage today, we have Jesus uh, at the, right after the Last Supper meal has ended, uh, teaching his disciples even more. Um, if you, your Bible's anything like mine, that captures the red letters. Uh, the red letters that capture Jesus' words, uh, you see a lot of red words coming up. We're in the, we've seen a lot, and now we have a lot more to come. So we're going to begin to unpack that together. All right, so let's actually start by praying um, and asking God to be with us as we look at his word together and that he would make it uh, come alive for us um, this morning. Um, Father God, we, um, we, we come to you today uh, uh, in this holy moment, uh, in this, this time, this special time that we have set aside to, to hear from you and to uh, take your word into our heart and into, into our very being that we might uh, gain a greater glimpse of of who you are and and what you've done um, and and what you hope to do even here now in Seattle in 2024. And so as we come to your word, I just ask that you would give us eyes to see it, you would give us hearts to understand it, you would give us ears that can listen to it and that without running from it, Lord. And and God, would you just show us how how your your, your grace is, is made manifest by your word for your people to give us life and, and to help other people find life in your name as well. So we pray towards all that end, all those ends that you use this time this morning, Father God. Pray all this in the name of Jesus, who worked so hard to make it possible, and, and, and in your spirit, who manifests that in our presence today. Pray, um, amen, amen. All right, so we are in John chapter 15. Uh, and in true John fashion, we've come to one of the more popular passages in the Christian faith. Uh, so many popular passages of the Christian faith come from the book of John. I don't know, he just had a way of words and capturing everything that Jesus said. Um, and so we come to another one of those today where Jesus tells his disciples to abide in him. Remain in me is what our, the CSB translation says, or other translations will, will say, abide in me. And he gives that after this seventh and, and, and final I am statement that he gives in the book of John. Um, I think it's ringing a little bit. Do you hear it ringing? Maybe I'm wrong. Um, 
But so John, if you've been tracking with us, John really orders his work around seven big signs or miracles that Jesus does and seven I am statements that, uh, that Jesus gave about himself. And this one in chapter 15 kicks it off. I am the true vine. This is the seventh and final I am statement that Jesus proclaims and declares about himself. And, and this I am the true vine um, invokes perhaps, probably, one of the more and most precious illustrations and analogies that the Hebrews had about their relationship with God. And it's not just like how they related to God, but also um, it draws out all the aspects of what that relationship that they had with God was meant to produce in the world. And so we've, in Jesus saying this, we've actually bumped into one of the most precious things, precious pictures that the Hebrews had in their religion and in their minds as they contemplated God. And so let's just start by reading it together so you, you can get a taste of it here. Um, because I think once you read it, you, it, when you read it, you just clearly understand that you're, you're in a different realm. You're in a different space. That, that, like that song that we just sang, we're in a holy moment. This is a holy, a holy uh, statement, a holy discussion that Jesus is having. And you can just feel it as you step into it. So let's read it together. Chapter 15, starting in verse 1. We're going to go through to verse 11, and let's back up to the last phrase of um, chapter 14, because if you're here last week, Jesus was sitting at the Last Supper meal with the disciples. They're actually reclining. Uh, this is the reclining on the ground. The tables were lower uh, in that time and culture, and, and so that at the end of the meal, Jesus says this, get up. Let's leave this place. So they eat. Jesus does some teaching. Then he says, get up. Let's leave this place. But they don't quite leave. It's almost as if they just stand up from the table. At the end of chapter 17, uh, we see that they're going to leave and actually go out to, um, it says in 18.1, after Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. This is the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? And so there's this kind of lingering, standing, perhaps doorway discussion you could envision that happens after they stand up from the meal and before they progress out into the night. Jesus says this. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean or pruned. It's just the the same Greek adverb from that verb. You are already clean or pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain, or other translations will say abide, in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, he says it again. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Dave gave a sermon on that two weeks ago because Jesus talked about that earlier in chapter 14. We're not going to talk about that part today. 
tune back on, on YouTube for, to, to, or Spotify, however you get your podcasts. Go back there. Verse eight, Jesus said, my father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Now let's have a raise of hands real quick. Which of us, after hearing Jesus' statements in the first 10 verses, experiences this joy that he's talking about? Who say, my joy is complete now? Those 10 verses, my joy is complete now. No. These are some interesting verses, are they not? This isn't our experience, it, our experience with it. If we're honest with ourselves, this illustration actually might do a host of other things, might produce a host of other stuff within us, perhaps guilt, like, oh man, I should, I should really abide more, right? Right? Uh, perhaps it's anxiety. Which type of branch am I? How do I know? Uh, perhaps it's confusion. What exactly is fruit? Like, if, if I need to see what kind of branch I am, what, what kind of fruit am I supposed to look for? Or perhaps it's even frustration. This is exactly what I hate about Christians. They talk so much about the love of God, but eventually the shoe always drops and we're throwing people in the fire. This is, this is a loaded passage. It inspires a lot of emotions within us, and the least of them are probably joy. Now, those are all valid thoughts, valid responses, valid emotional responses, definitely don't sound like joy. And, and as I've talked with more and more people about this passage and abiding in Christ, I find that these verses actually make our mind ask one question, and it's some version of who are the real followers of Jesus? Who are the real followers of Jesus? And this is what creates all this tension and anxiety, whether it be guilt, anxiety, confusion, anger, who are the real followers of Jesus? But I'm, I want to set aside that question today. I, I don't want to try to answer that question. Um, we just need to make a simple observation of what's going on here, and it's that Jesus is talking to his real followers. Jesus is all, or Judas has already left. Judas is gone. He's out. He's gone, okay? Jesus is having a conversation with his real followers, and when we start to lay that question aside, if we start to lower the stakes a bit, I guess, on, on what this passage is saying about you and your eternal status with God, what happens is we start to begin to see things, beautiful, amazing, glorious things that have the opportunity to produce joy when you encounter this passage, okay? So we're going to lower the stakes. I'm not going to preach a sermon to you about who the real followers of Jesus are, Okay, I'm not going to do that. Um, all we're going to do is hopefully gain a deeper understanding of Jesus. We're just going to look at Jesus. We're going to ask what he's trying to say. What are the metaphors that he's leaning on in order that we can find life and joy? Okay, that's what we're going to do. Now, an initial observation. One thing is abundantly clear in this passage. Jesus isn't looking at his disciples and saying, produce fruit, guys. 
hey guys, you, you better produce fruit. That's not what he's saying to them. No, to, to borrow Dave's, uh, Pastor Dave's phrasing from last week, um, fruit is symptomatic of abiding in Christ. Fruit is symptomatic of abiding in Christ. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Fruit comes from abiding in Christ. Dave said something like that that last week from the end of chapter 14. When, When Jesus told his disciples that their obedience of him was to be symptomatic of their love for him. Okay, they didn't have to listen to Jesus because they feared him, but Jesus said that they would listen to him if they loved him. One is the symptom of the other. And and so you're naturally left with the question after last week is, well, how do I love Jesus? How do I love Jesus then? Love is a hard question to answer. I mean, philosophers, poets, they've been trying to answer how love actually happens for millennia. How does love actually happen? Jesus tells us here. Jesus tells us that a symptom of loving him or or what is going to lead to loving him is actually this thing called abiding. Okay, so there's this full chain. So last week, Dave is talking, really he's talking um, about loving Christ and obeying Christ. That's what, if you tuned in last week, and how obeying Christ was a symptom of loving Christ. And this week, Jesus is going to kind of create a uh, chain that looks at the outer parts of that, about how abiding in Christ leads to a love for Christ that leads to an obedience towards Christ, which produces this gospel fruit in the world, okay? So fruit is symptomatic of obedience, which is symptomatic of love for Christ, which is symptomatic of abiding. That's the chain that we're kind of stepping into here. I just wanted to illuminate that for you. Like, you really need last week to get the full arc of what's going on today, okay? But but we're really going to be dealing with that chain, those four things. Um, And in order to do that, Jesus gives us this amazing, this amazing picture of a vine. This amazing picture of a vine. So what we're going to do today, we're just going to unpack that picture of the vine. Then we're going to look at abiding, which is the first uh, part of the chain. And then we're going to look at the fruit, which is the last part of the chain, okay? So that's our game plan. You ready? Let's do it. So verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. This is a huge deal. This is a huge deal. Like I mentioned earlier, Jesus has actually stepped into one of the most sacred illustrations the Hebrews had that outlined their relationship to God and his purpose for them in the world. It's it's an illustration that pops up over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament prophetic works. That's the last 16 books of the Old Testament. They're the prophets. This image pops up over and over and over again. And the image goes like this. At first... Israel was a vine. It was a vine, but it was an oppressed vine that couldn't produce any fruit. Why? Because it was in Egypt in slavery. 
And what God did was he pulled that vine up out of Egypt and he took it and he planted it in the promised land. And in that promised land, it had all the conditions necessary for this vine to to grow and produce incredible fruit that could be used for incredible, incredible wine. And the whole purpose of this wine was that that the nations surrounding Israel would look in and and say, see, and then say, whoa, that's some incredible wine. What are, what are they doing in that valley to grow such great grapes? How are they experiencing so much peace? How are they experiencing so much prosperity? What? This is crazy. And so God's idea is for this vine to produce such incredible fruit that the onlooking world becomes curious and goes to investigate. That's the imagery of the vine. And actually, the, the peak of this vine imagery actually happens during the reign of King Solomon. During the reign of King Solomon, nations from around the, uh, around the area surrounding Israel and even all the way down in Africa, we're told, send emissaries and even the rulers themselves go to Jerusalem to, to, say, to, to ask the question, how is all this peace happening? Where's all this prosperity coming from? And, and the conclusion that many of them come to, Queen Sheba is the biggest example, who's thought to be the, the ruler of a kingdom kind of in the Ethiopia area. At least if you're Ethiopian, you claim King Sheba, Queen Sheba. Any Ethiopians in the room? No? This is big. One of my mentors in seminary was an Ethiopian. Big on Queen Sheba. Okay. But she says, how happy are your people? You rule them with wisdom that comes from this God that I've never heard of before. This must be an incredible God. That's the goal of the vine. That's the goal of the vine. Unfortunately, Israel didn't flourish long in this land. Eventually, Israel started worshiping other gods, and so what happened is their fruit started being not as good. Peace ended. Prosperity ended. All of a sudden, uh, because they're worshiping other gods, God himself, himself pulled back as a gardener and didn't care for the vine like he once did. He, he, uh, there's, the imagery brings up like, God, your vineyard has been broken into and, and the nations passing by steal its grapes. This is what's happened. The vine was broken down, um, but not altogether dead. And the great Israelite hope is that God would restore this vine once more. And Psalm chapter 80 is um, actually where we see this illustration taken up from beginning to end. Uh, It's not in one of the prophetic works, but it just like takes up the illustration from beginning to end in Psalm 80 here. And Psalm 80 is in the the third book of the Psalms, and so we're meant to read it um, in that order of Israelite history, which is the kingdom fading away. Not, exile hasn't happened yet, but the kingdom's fading away. The grapes are starting to be bad. The, the Israel's starting to get raided, and the grapes are starting to get taken away and eaten. And so this is what Psalm 80 says. It says, listen, shepherd of Israel. The psalmist is addressing God. You who leads Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine on Ephraim, Benjamin and Manasseh, those are some of the tribes of Israel. Rally your power and come to save us. Restore us, God. Make your face shine on us so that we may be saved. Lord God of armies, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You fed them the bread of tears and gave them full measure of tears to drink. You put us at odds with our neighbors. Our enemies mock us. 
Restore us, God of armies. Make your face shine upon us so that we may be saved. You dug up a vine from Egypt. Here's, here's where the vine stuff pick comes in. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared a place for it. It took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered by its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out sprouts toward the sea and shoots towards the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its, pick its fruit? Boars from the forest tear at it and creatures of the field feed on it. Return, God of armies. Look down from heaven and see. Take care of this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun that you made strong for yourself. It was cut down and burned. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be with the man at your right hand. You think this is a reference to Jesus? Absolutely it is. With the son of man, what Jesus called himself. You have made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord, God of armies. Make your face shine on us so that we may be saved. The repeated refrain. This is incredible. Remember, um, the disciples have risen up from the table. Uh, Get up. Let us leave this place, Jesus says. They've risen up. Does anybody remember what Matthew and Mark tell us they did after they rose up, but before they left? Does anybody remember? They sang a song. That's right. They sang a song. Definitely a psalm. Maybe this song. Maybe. It's, it's just my hunch. I couldn't find like a smart Christian scholar to corroborate that. I looked, couldn't find it. Maybe this psalm. Maybe they sung this psalm and Jesus started teaching on it. Maybe. It didn't have to be, but, but maybe. Israel was God's special vine that received his special care, and he worked closely with it to produce abundant fruit in order to reveal himself to the world. And all who participated in it as God's people and children found a sort of union with him in his family. They were involved with this incredible task of of revealing this this God who created everything and loves humans more than anything to the world. And Jesus comes along and says, I am that vine. Whether they just sing Psalm 80 or not, he's saying, guys, do you know that vine imagery from the Old Testament? That's, That's me. I am the true vine. I am the son from the right hand of God that has come to make God's fruit known in the world. I am that vine. I've come to revive the people of God so that they might produce fruit that makes all the onlooking world curious about who this God must be, that they would experience such a deep peace and, and joy and satisfaction that, that they, other people looking on will say, what is, what is going on here? There must be something to consider here. Jesus said, I am that vine. I'm here to reveal God's incredible love and incredible grace to a world that so desperately needs it. And just like before, my followers are the branches. Apart from me, apart from the root and stalk, you can't bear this fruit, but in me, this fruit can flow through you. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. 
And so we can look at Jesus' life and really see God's special care and attention that he gave Jesus as the true vine. And God will pull that vine up out of the grave, just like bringing Israel out of Egypt, pull it up out of the grave and set it somewhere where the whole earth can, can look at it and the fruit that it produces. Jesus comes in and and where old Israel failed, he says, I'll be the true Israel. I will succeed Israel where where you fell short. And all who unite themselves to me through believing in me, that's John's big, big subject throughout his work, by believing in me, will be able to participate in that once more. Jesus is the vine with the most amazing gospel fruit that touches the the tongue. That, that really satisfies, that really energizes, that really heals. It, it gives purpose and meaning. It provides belonging. This gospel fruit is, is like a warm hug wherever you go. Do you, do you want to receive that fruit? It's for you. And when you receive it, you're invited into the same vine story to participate, to produce it for others. That's the imagery of what's going on here. Do you see how full this picture is? It's a big, full plan of what God is trying to do in the world. It's his great hope. It's his great purpose. It's his great mission in the world and for the world. And Jesus says, it all is going to happen through me. And you're going to be invited to be on board in so much as you abide and remain in me. We're going to produce such incredible fruit that makes onlookers curious enough to consider and investigate who this God must be. That's what it's about. So what does this all mean? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's, it's really easy to say that you're a Christian because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago and, and maybe some way that God showed up in your midst in your life and, and made you consider it and, and, and see that it was real and true and good and for you. And, and that's good and that's perfect and that's true. But there's something more. It's only part of the story because Jesus, because Jesus, while gospel fruit can only come through him, he's not here. Okay, so like, like his work on the cross and, and God raising him from the dead really enabled the vine to flourish and gospel fruit to enter the world. But he's up there. Like you didn't receive that gospel fruit through his hands. You received it through someone else's. I don't know who it was for you, a, a friend, a mentor, a teacher. I, I don't know who it was for you. But, but it was someone. It was someone who, through their abiding in Christ, they caught a glimpse of an eternal love, of an eternal vision, and so they set aside their efforts to create heaven on earth now, to create gospel fruit on earth now instead. That's... They picked up the the, the vision and the mission and the goodness of the vine to reproduce that. And you benefited. I benefited. I I can very clearly remember that mentor in my life I had. Very clearly. It was through his hands that I received the gospel fruit. Now, do you think a text message or a phone call to that person is of gratitude is worth your time this afternoon? You better believe it is. You better believe it is. We need to thank those who, who set aside their own desires in this life to pass along the gospel fruit to us. It's beautiful. And they brought it about by abiding. I can guarantee it. 
if it came to you and it was good and it was true and it was beautiful and it stirred up in, in your heart and in your mind a desire to love and follow Jesus, it's because they were abiding in Christ. So what is that? What exactly does this mean and what might it look like? Let's go to abiding. Okay, so uh, back to 15, verse 1. Jesus said, I am the vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, here's the first time it comes up. Remain, or abide in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me, or abide. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. And then over the next couple of verses, he's going to use the word remain or abide five more times. Five more times. Now, it's a shame that the word is so vague, isn't it? Like, it's clearly the central thrust of this passage. Nine times. Nine times. Is there a how-to attached to any of them, really? I, I didn't pick up on one. Maybe you did. Send, send me an email. I, I didn't pick up on one. There's no how-tos attached to this. But it is the central thing that Jesus is telling his followers to do. Sometimes what I find so frustrating about Christianity is that Jesus' statements seem so incredibly archaic and vague. Is anybody with me here? Like... This is a hard part about reading the Gospels. One of the um, smart scholar people that I read this week um, puts this like this, though. He says, if you look at it in the Greek, this verb remain is in the aorist imperative, which is a constantive or constative, which means a solemn command. And this stresses the urgency of the act. It's as if Jesus says, make abiding your top priority. This command serves to introduce the primary category by which the Christian relates and communes with God. This is the foundational manner of Christian existence. And we don't have a how-to. It's kind of frustrating. I'm fr- it frustrated me. It's like, well, where's our how-to? Why isn't it defined more? How do we start to try to figure it out? How do we start to try to figure it out? Um, You guys are students of the scripture. When you want to figure out what a word means in scripture, what do you do? What's one thing you might do? Shout it out. That's fine. What's that? Someone say Google it? That's a great answer. That's a really good answer. Yeah, Google it. Yep, yep, yep. Find it somewhere else. Yes, that's right. Find it somewhere else, particularly in the same work of the same author, of the same author that's writing. Okay, so John is writing here. Last week, uh, so we do that in in church all the time. Last week, Dave did that. Um, If you're here, we last week we unpacked how the Holy Spirit uh, is called. John calls him, or Jesus calls him, the Paraclete. Jesus says, "I'll send you a Paraclete to be with you, the Holy Spirit." And, And what John did, or what Dave did, was he bumped over into a letter of John. 1 John, who uses the same word paraclete of Jesus to show us that paraclete isn't the title of the Holy Spirit. Um, Advocating or counseling 
us is actually the function of the entire Godhead. The Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in counseling and advocating for us, just in each in their own way. So with abide or remain, what we see is John's used this word seven times already in his book. Seven times, and he uses it nine times here. And what's really interesting about the way that he uses this Greek word remain or abide, it's meno in in the Greek, is he uses it in two different ways. He uses it one way when God's doing the remaining, and he uses it in a seemingly different way when humans are doing the remaining. So let's look at those real quick. The the way that he uses it when it's used of God is how the other New New Testament writers tend to use the word of of everybody remaining and menowing and abiding, I guess you could say. Um, So we'll just call this the normal way to use the word, and it happens three times in, in chapter 14. In verse 10, Jesus said, the Father lives in me. And that word lives is actually abides or dwells with me. This is kind of the normal thing, normal way the word is used. It dwells with me. Like there's like a location of a place that two things are brought together close. And so the Father lives in me or dwells in me. That's what Jesus says in verse 10. In 14 verse 17, he says, the spirit remains with you and will be in you. Like the spirit is close to you. In verse 25, Jesus says, I have remained with you all this time. He's talking about the last three years that he's walked around the, the Israel countryside with his disciples. I've remained with you all this time. I've been close to you. I've dwelt among you. So here the, the word is used of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, actually, and has this dwelling notion where it means to abide or be close. That's how it's used. Now there's this strange way. There's this strange way that carries a different flavor of the word altogether um, in these other four instances that meno is used And it seems to mean something far more than just being in close proximity with someone else or something else. Um, Back in John 6.56, Jesus is uh, talking to the crowds, and he says this, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me. It's at this point that many of the followers are like, okay, weird cult, we're out of here. Okay, this guy's asking us to eat his body, drink his blood. That's a cult, okay? They leave, and they leave. So you see, so this notion of abiding seems to carry with it this aspect of consuming? Huh, that's strange. In John 8, 31, Jesus said to some people who had decided to follow him, if you continue, it's translated in my translation, but the, it's word, it comes from meno, if you remain in my word, you really are my disciples. He's saying, if you hang on my every word, or you can say it like this, if you keep taking my word into yourself, if you keep on ingesting my word, if you hang on my words, if you stay close to it in that way, you really are my disciples. So here too, this kind of notion of consuming is with this word. And then in John 12, 36, this one's really cool. It's the last thing that Jesus actually shouts to the crowds. John's work is kind of divided between like Jesus' ministry to the crowds and then uh, in, verse, or in chapter 13 it kind of switches to now Jesus is just going to have a conversation with his disciples. The last thing he says to the crowd is this. While you have the light, believe, that word is actually remain, remain in the light. God, see, John uses the word believe, pisteo, all the time in his gospel, but he actually doesn't use it here. He uses meno. Remain in the light. 
So Jesus said, while you have the light, remain in the light so that you will become children of the light. He's saying, bask in me while you still have me here. He says, come close and get a Jesus burn, essentially. Consume my rays. Get in the light. Get in my sphere so that you can consume my rays and get this Jesus burn of sorts. You see, like, there's this element that this consuming nature of Christ begins to transform. We consume, the rays hit us, and they transform us into children of light like him. That's what's going on with this minnow. And when we start to understand and really unpack and attach this, this notion of consuming, as awkward as it is, to this notion of abiding, it makes um, John 5 make a lot more sense. When Jesus told um, the Jewish religious leaders this, he said, you don't have God's word residing in you or remaining in you because you don't believe the one he sent. That's, that is him. He's saying, you haven't consumed God's word. It's not in you. You've heard it. You've heard it plenty. You guys teach on it all the time, but it's not in you. You haven't consumed it because that's my word. And if it was in you, when I'd show up, you'd recognize that I'm here, but you're just hearing it. You're not consuming it. We're hosting the Alpha Course right now, which is really fun, really fun. It's something we do every year, it's a lot of life. We're, we just finished week four, and there's just a ton of people that are continuing to show up to consider Jesus, and really great conversations. Um, but it's, each week we watch a video of a guy named Nicky Gumbel. Uh, Sedaris might be um, tired of hearing stories about Nicky Gumbel, but it's Alpha season, so it just happens, okay? Nicky Gumbel. And Nicky Gumbel, very early on um, in the course, kind of, he, well, he, he's a British atheist who converted to Christianity when he was in college. And he's been producing the Alpha Course for something like 30 years now. Long time. Its success is, is really a, a result of God working through him to bring it to the world. Um, but, but early on in the course, Nikki shares um, his conversion story about his transition from atheism over to Christianity uh, back when he was in college. Okay, And um, it goes like this. A very simple story. He says... I spent several days reading the Bible, and then I was convinced it was true. That's it. That, that, that's, his, that's his conversion story. No conversations with other people who handled his questions. Uh, no deep wrestling. His belief just flipped like a switch. And, and it's the type of conversion story that always kind of bothers me a little bit. Like it, It's not my experience. I've not honestly seen that happen with a lot of people um, but it's exactly the dynamic that this word meno carries. What Nikki is saying is, I consumed the Bible. I ate it, the word of God. I ate it, which is Jesus in book form. I consumed that, I ate it, I ate all of it. And when I was done, it produced within me this love for Christ that I couldn't explain and I couldn't turn off. And every day since, I just continue to eat them. I eat the word. I abide in Christ. That's what his story is. You see, consuming Christ is really close to the true essence of abiding in Christ. It's, it's constantly ingesting the gospel in various forms which stir up our affections for Christ, our sense of gratefulness, of wonder that, that God himself, who created everything would come to earth and die just so he could hang out with us. Like, that's mind-blowing. 
And abiding is consuming the gospel in a variety of ways so that you come into contact with that reality. And when that happens, it stirs up your affections and love for Christ. And in turn, it produces an obedience that produces fruit. Now, this type of religion is completely different from all other human types of religion because most other human types of religion focus on not on abiding or consuming, but on actions, on knowledge, on experiences. Jesus' religion is focused on who you consume, namely him. Now, now human religions really function this way so much. There's so much the default of, of how we think we need to relate with the spiritual, whatever it is, that it actually ends up coming into Christianity too. And so you have versions of Christianity and flavors of Christianity that are really focused and primarily focused, probably the best way to say it, primarily focused on the, the actions, knowledge, and experiences that we have. Pursuing those things instead of consuming Christ. And because they're the biggest barriers to abiding in Christ, uh, I've created a handout here that we get to walk through together. A little handout. So they're in your seat back in front of you. Some of you may have pulled it out. I asked Jenny to put it in there because I said, Jenny, I don't want them to, to steal my aha before it's time. Um, if you're in the front row, I have some on the communion table right there for you guys to on the front row, okay? So I've kind of created this, I pulled this handout together because these three things really are the biggest obstacles to abiding in Christ, to really considering Jesus, you could say. Okay, so we're just going to go through each column at a time, and you're going to see that I put abide or remain all the way on the other, like it's not its own column, it's like, it's something completely different. It's, it's not a column, like Jesus showed up and just made this revolutionary statement that says, my religion is to just consume me. Okay, so like, so it's not its own column, it's just so different. Okay, so let, let's work through it here. Moralism. Performance is the key to spiritual fulfillment. And by spiritual fulfillment, I think um, how I can be on good terms with the deity or God or gods, whatever it is, moralism takes, can exist anywhere in any religion, really. How can I be on good terms with the deity and how can my life go well now? I need the right set of morals in order for those things to happen and take place in my life. And so they're primarily focused on the fruit of righteousness. We're going to get to fruit here in a second, righteousness. And the attitude of moralism is I need to do the right things and not do the wrong things. And so it lives in the sphere of the will. You know, what my, I have control and power over my actions, like what I do and not do, what I decide to do and not do. It kind of lives in that sphere, moralism does. And so it kind of makes faith, it views faith as a decision to accept Christ. I just need to decide that. And then abiding gets reduced to obeying or listening. Here's the problem. Our wills are really weak and we keep failing. No matter how strong your resolve is not to do something wrong or to do the right thing, you're going to fall short often. You're going to mess up. Our wills are really weak, and we just keep, keep, keep on failing. And so we might, so, someone in the moralism camp will choose to ignore that fact and look at, hold on to the righteous acts that they do do, and it turns into pride. That's, that's the outcome here. Righteousness does end up turning into pride. 
And here's the declaration of Romans 3.12. There's no one righteous, not a single person. And Jesus shows up and says, you're trying to do all these things to find the way. You're trying to do all these things to get on the way to God. I am the way. I am the way. That's what the moralist needs to hear. Your actions aren't the way. I'm, I'm the way. A moralist, um, you see this happen in Christianity a lot, actually. You see someone who's been a Christian for a while, and then they'll say, you know, I, I just don't think I'm a Christian anymore because there's this sin pattern in my, in my life that I just can't get rid of. It's like, hold up, hold up. Are you sure you're not just a moralist? All right, the, the next column is intellectualism. Intellectualism, which views knowledge as the key to spiritual f- fulfillment. Knowledge is the key to being on good terms with God. Knowledge is the key to how to live a happy life. The primary fruit focus is going to try to hold on to truth. It's a, it's a real fruit. We're going to see it. I, I need to have truth. It's good. I need, to, I need to have and manifest truth. I need to say the right things to people. So that means I need to think the right things and not think the wrong things. That's the attitude. The sphere is in the mind. Faith is seen as an assent to a list of beliefs. Abiding gets, retur- gets reduced to learning. Here's the problem. Our minds are weak. Reasoning is hard. And if we're honest, there's just too much to know. You'll never master it all. You'll never master it all. You're going to think you have it mastered, only years later discover you were wrong the whole way along. And unfortunately, the outcome often looks like truth filling our heads while we ignore our lives. This is a painful thing to witness. Someone with all the right answers, but a mess of a life. Paul says it like this, kind of rebukes the intellectualism, like this in Romans 3.12. There's no one who understands. Romans 3 is so important because in Romans chapter 1, Paul really surveys all Greek religion, and then Romans chapter 2, Paul surveys Judaism. So he's, review, he's kind of surveying all religion. And so he's coming down in chapter three and he's saying, none of these paths work. There's no one righteous. There's no one who understands. And then there's no one who seeks God, he says, to mysticism. Mysticism. This would be seeing spiritual experience as the key to spiritual fulfillment. Really focused on the fruit of goodness. If I spiritually experience God in an intense way, goodness is going to wash back into my life. And so the attitude is I need to get close to the spiritual in order to unlock the blessing that's there. The sphere it operates in is in the, the, the emotional sphere. What I experience, the feelings that I get. Faith is really seen um, as an experience of another world. Abiding gets reduced to those experiences and finding the next one and, and really trying to work hard to, when you're in some space where you might get an experience, to subject yourself in the right ways in order to get it. Here's a problem. Emotional highs are passing and fleeting. Never going to have enough. Striving for the next experience, it never, never ends. And Paul says to, to that type of mysticism, there's no one who actually seeks God. You're seeking something else in all of that. And Jesus shows up and says, I am the life. You're seeking goodness. I am that goodness you desire. Just like how he says to someone who's, you're seeking truth? Why are you going to all the books? I am that truth. Get that right first. We're going to get to the book. But I am the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. 
So abiding or remaining works completely differently. It's constantly ingesting the gospel in various forms, which stirs up our affections for Jesus Christ, producing light-filled grace offerings. That's how I put fruit in a multitude of ways. Okay, so we kind of made this, this handout here so that you could have this with you to just kind of refer anytime you wanted to. Um, and I guess I'll say this right now is like, shortly after I became a Christian, I began relating to God as a moralist. Short, like, and God had to prune that fruit off of me in order to produce better fruit. You know what I did? I went to the misfit camp. God had to prune that fruit off of me so I'd produce better fruit. You know what I did? I went to the intellectual camp. And God had to prune that off of me so I would produce better, good, lasting, beautiful fruit. I've, I've tasted it all. Those fruits aren't that great. But I remember the time being so convinced this was the way. So convinced this is the life. So convinced this is the truth. Praise be to God that he pruned me. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, I need to be pruned. I could use some pruning. I could use some pruning. It's only natural. Like I said, this this is how humans naturally conceive of ourselves relating with the spiritual. It's only natural for it to wash into Christianity in different forms and ways and even in our own individual lives if it's not formally taught we just tend to think that way and take things that way but what Jesus came to do is something completely completely different he's saying just consume me it's going to produce a love in you that's going to lead to some incredibly beautiful things in your life and in this world just consume me see someone who's abiding in Christ will look at the moralist and say, you're looking at your shortcomings completely backwards. You look at them and, and you strategize for how you can be good. No, 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 don't do that. You have to consume the gospel. You need to look at your shortcomings as opportunities to fall upon the grace of God. That's going to stir up affection. That's abiding. You see, the the person who's abiding will look at the intellectual and say, hold up, hold up, knowledge for knowledge's sake is is never going to satisfy. That's a never-ending road. Instead, learn to consume deep theological thinking as a means to stand in awe of the Godhead. That's going to produce and stir up an incredible love for Christ. They'll look at the mystic and say, you're going to spend all your efforts trying to access the spiritual. Don't do that. It's backwards. Learn to cultivate worship as a means for proclaiming who God is and what he's done in the world. See what that does to stir up affection for Christ in your life. It's amazing. It's amazing. You see, these human religions get it completely backwards. And it derails Christians for so long. I was derailed for so long. Abiding in Christ, it's fundamentally different than performance. It's different than knowledge. It's different than experiences. Like, I, I can't give you a book on it, honestly. Like, like, I wish I could, but I understand why Jesus is like, I really can't give you a how-to. 
You just have to consume me and see what stirs up your affection for me. I mean, there are some basic ways you can consume Christ, like prayer and reading your Bible and going to a worship service, but you can engage all those things like a moralist and intellectual and a mystic as well. How are you engaging these things? Abiding does it in a completely different way, only with the goal in mind to encounter Jesus. I'm gonna eat Jesus so I can encounter Jesus. It's reading your Bible, hoping to fall in love with Jesus. It's talking to him as your friend with no agenda. It's coming to a worship service, hoping to get a meal of Christ. All that makes your heart leap in love towards him. It's putting yourself in the way of fresh meals of Jesus. It's probably the best way I can put words to it. Not because it's going to make you smarter or better, feel good. Just because of what he's done for you. Um, it's incredibly individual is what I've found as I've talked to more and more Christians like, and asked them, like, what brings you joy? What stirs up your affections for Christ? For me, it's like reading old Puritan writers, like old dead Christians, okay? Like, like that gets my love stirred up for Christ in ways that you would not believe. I tell Pastor Dave, I'm like, Dave, I read Pilgrim's Progress again. It's amazing. Dave's like, what? <laughs> I can't make it through more than a couple paragraphs of that, Ryan. I'm like, yeah, but I love it. Like, it's incredibly, and what stirs up your affections for Christ? Do that. Do that. I don't know what it is for you, but do it. That's abiding in Christ. Now, what are these gospel meals meant to eventually produce? Remember, we got a gospel meal that's abiding, producing love, producing obedience, producing fruit. Fruit. So let's get to the fruit of the matter, will we? Okay, shall we? Last link. What is fruit? Anyways, there are a few ways fruit's talked about in the New Testament and, um, and the few, way that, few ways that it's conceived of in the Christian life. Um, one way recalls kind of Jesus telling his disciples to go make other disciples and then kind of remembers, oh yeah, Jesus talked a lot about wheat and grain fields and a harvest and seed getting scattered. That's the gospel and people coming to believe in him as kind of uh, multiplication. So fruit is kind of like uh, evangelizing and making more disciples uh, of Jesus. Um, yeah, okay, sure, sure. It's hard to see how that couldn't be a fruit, but is it the fruit Jesus has in mind here? I'm not so certain. Uh, the illusion of, or the, the illustration of the vine here isn't necessarily to make more vines. It's to make wine, okay? Incredible wine for the world, okay? Um, so maybe the test uh, as of fruit being in our life of have other people come to believe in Jesus because of my conversations or work in their life might not be the best one to make. Um, another explanation would be to go to the Bible passage that defines the fruit of the Spirit. Are you guys familiar with this Bible passage? In Galatians 5, where Paul looks at the Galatians, and well, I don't know, he doesn't look at them, he's just writing letters. He writes to the Galatians who have deeply fallen into moralism, okay? And he says, the fruit of the Spirit is not what you do or what you don't do, foolish Galatians. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what you should be going towards, not what you do or don't do. And I sh- I sure, that, I suppose that sounds good too. Let's Let's do that. I don't think we should rule that fruit out either in his mention of fruit here. But, but I want to go somewhere else, primarily because of this chain, um, this chain that is all-encompassing. This abiding 
that produces a love, that produces an obedience, that leads to fruit, uh, seems to me that this abiding is really going to produce fruit anywhere and everywhere. It it really is going to, because it's meant to be this thing that the world sees and and can see and interact with and be curious about, you know, so like, like I think we need a broad definition of a fruit that could include everything, all of that, whatever that is, all of that, anything that you could do in response to Jesus's love in your life, that would be fruit, Okay, like, like it's very broad, okay? And that's why we've, I've bumped over to Ephesians 5, if you'll remember this handout here. Ephesians 5, there's 10 verses that Paul, says, Paul uses in Ephesians 5 here that really captures, I think, just the essence of fruit. And it really comes to line up with Jesus as the light of the world and asking us to bathe in his rays so that we might be children of light. So let's look at it here. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love, as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this, every sexual, immoral, or impure, or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Okay, so like, so pause, that was, that was a lot. Part of me wanted to just start in verse 6, right? Like, the question you should be having is like, is Paul just like spouting off moralism here? Sounds like moralism. Really focus on what we do and what we don't do. But this is how Paul continues. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You are light. You've been transformed. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. There are those three things, goodness, righteousness, and truth. Testing what is pleasing to the Lord. See that there? The fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and it's anything you can do that stems from your affections towards God. It's going to look incredibly different depending on who you are and where you're at. It's incredibly individualized, incredibly unique, expressed in the various spheres that you guys find yourself in. Like, I can't, like, sometimes at Sedaris, people will say, like, hey, I wish you gave me more of an application of something to do this week. And I'm like, ah, it's really hard for me. Like, all I really want to do is just say, go stir up your affections for Jesus and come back and report with what the fruit was, you know? Like, that's all I can do is present the gospel to you and, and pray and hope that it stirs up for your, your affections for Christ. If you're a tech worker or a healthcare worker or a mom, like, I can't give you fruit to pursue. I've done not, none of those. None of those things I've done. But what might fruit look like in your realms of influence? What could that look like? This is all to say that there's so much creative license here. We worship a creator, a creative God, who comes into our life and stirs up our affections and calls us to just um, let those affections spill out into the world. I don't know what that's going to look like for you. Probably based on your disposition, where you, so many different things. But I've called them light-filled grace offerings in your handout. Light-filled grace offerings. They come from the light, 
and they're done as grace offerings, gifts to the Lord. The word grace is so, 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 so important. These are things you do, offerings you bring without any strings attached. They're because of love, not a a way to earn love, not a way to earn enlightenment, not a way to earn an experience of God, going back to those other three. They're an overflow of our love, of our delight, of our joy in him. That's what they are. So whatever that is, report back what that is. We'd love to hear about it. We'd love to hear about it. There's, where's the last page of my notes? People of the Lord may have been spared. <laughs> I think I got it in my head. Okay, last page of my notes. Sometimes that printer runs out of paper. Okay. <laughs> but this brings us to communion. Okay, this brings us directly to communion. And communion, remember, you jump back to John 6. To remain in me is to eat my flesh and drink my blood. For 2,000 years, the church has come to this table and they've been really curious and struggled to explain what exactly it is that happens at this table. Like, like we have people saying like there's, like, there's a presence of Christ that is present here as we engage communion, as we abide with, as we consume Christ, his body and his blood in these ways, and in such a way that he must just be present in a special way. Maybe the bread and the juice get turned to the body and blood of Christ. This, has been a, this is the position of the Catholic Church. Like there's a presence of Christ here that is undeniable. And this is why we lean into communion each and every week here at Sedaris. It's precisely because Christ is present in a special way. And this table is an opportunity to abide in him. This is an opportunity to lean into the gospel message, the fact that he died for you on the cross, the fact that God pulled him up and raised him from the grave so that the whole world could experience the the, the wonderful fruit and, and good wine that he would produce. The fact that God created, um, uh, that God brought forth Christ to bring forth a religion that, that yields incredible grapes that only can produce the finest of wines that, that shows how all these other religions of moralism, intellectualism, and mysticism, is, those grapes only can, it's not like there's, it's not fruit. Like, I wouldn't say it's not fruit, it's just the fruit that God prunes. Why? Because that fruit can only really produce two buck chuck at Trader Joe's, I guess. Like, it's, it's fruit that can't produce fine, but this is fine wine. This is the gospel. Christ is present with us here, and so as we lean into this, um, I just want to highlight that to you, that this table, it's not just a table, it's, it's an invitation to abide with Christ, to consume him, his body and his, his blood. Remember the gospel, everything that God did through him to make him the true Israel and enable us, which enables us to be attached to him through faith and united to him. We can produce fruit in the world. That's what this table's about. And Christ is present here as we consume him. So, so yeah, would you pray with me? Thank you for engaging just the vine and abiding and fruit and we really hope that more and more as we continue to even perhaps recover, I don't know if, if like, if it's you, but you're like, oh man, I didn't know what this table was all about. If that's you, it's like, yeah, hopefully we can recover this so we can dive back into abiding with Christ in new and fresh ways and stir up our affections for the Lord that produces incredible fruit that we can come back and report together. So, amen. Let's pray.